0: We have already established the fact that it is God's burden and heart's desire that the natural world would be a reflection of the supernatural. That is, that the realm of Earth would be in step, in sync, congruent with the realm of God, the heavenlies. We saw how this realm of time and space, notably here on Earth, got usurped by Satan and how it was overthrown and how God out of that chaotic situation brought forth a testimony in man, man that would shine for God and love for God and express God. And we've come to understand that perhaps the greatest calling, perhaps the most deepest of all callings that God can bestow upon a man, is for the man to be God's testimony behind, Enemy lines. In other words, God uses man to show off his glory, his mercy, his capability. I have a few passages to um, explain that for you. First, here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, 15, 16, and 17, Paul makes a tremendous statement regarding the mercy of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, he says, "...it's the grace of the Lord that superabounded towards me in faith and in love." He goes on in verse 15 to say that "...faithful is the word and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost." He goes on, but because of this I was shown mercy, that is, because I'm the chief of all sinners, God showed extravagant grace and mercy towards me, that in me Jesus Christ might display all his long suffering for a pattern to those who are to believe on him unto eternal life. That simply means that through the apostle Paul, something of God's long-suffering became known, something of God's mercy, something of God's grace. He made Paul an object to manifest God's kindness, God's benevolence. So he used Paul to show off something of himself. And therein is the truth. Man is to show forth something of God. And therefore Paul can say to him, who is the king of the ages, who is incorruptible, invisible to the only God, therefore be honor and glory forever and ever. You may also know of the very famous passage there in um, the book of Ephesians where Paul speaks about the tremendous grace and mercy of God. He um, says in verse 6 of chapter 2 that Jesus raised us up together with Him and He seated us together with Him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus so that God could display make known and manifest in the ages to come the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Bottom line, the Apostle Paul became a manifestation, an expression of God's goodness, of God's love, of God's mercy, of God's grace, you name it. Which brings me to this. Are you a manifestation of something of God. Now, nobody has ever seen God. It's not as though we can see the glory of God directly. But God has chosen to partner with His redeemed and sanctified vessels, His men and His women who have called on Him, believe into Him, in which His Spirit has filled them. He uses those to show off His glory. Can I ask you, When men interact with you, do they touch something of the glory of God? This is the calling of a man. And it's interesting that God wants you to glorify Him, that is, to express Him, to shine Him forth behind enemy lines. Most of us think God wants you to only shine Him in a squeaky clean environment when all your ducks are in a row and everything is controllable and the environment is just picture perfect, there's the best place to demonstrate God. But so often life is not that clean. Life is tough. It's as though we live in Babylon, full of idolatrous practices and the doctrines of demons and devils. And it's in this realm, this realm that Satan has usurped, that God can often show off His glory best. So what is God then doing in me? He is using me in this day and in this age and in this juncture of world history to be His Adam. And in this day, I will have a chance to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just like Adam did. And in this day, I will have a chance to eat from the tree of life. I can do it my way, which will end in death. Or I can learn to live by God, eat God, take God's way and become God's man. So yesterday, I wanted to just introduce you to a thought um, in a preliminary way that we are living, ladies and gentlemen, in a satanic world. We cannot see it necessarily, I don't understand entirely how it came about, but the Bible is very clear that there is an enemy of God. I want you to turn to 1st John. Let me show you this verse in 1st John chapter 5. So he says here, we know that everyone who is begotten of God does not sin. But he who has been begotten of God keeps himself. And the evil one, that's Satan, does not touch him, does not have an entrance into this man. Satan can buffet you, vex you and harass you, but he cannot have an entrance into the son and daughter of God. Jesus even said the similar thing. He said, "Um, the ruler of this world is coming and he has no place within me. Oh, he tempted Jesus and he tried to trick him and trip him up every which way. But he did not have an entrance in the Lord the way he had in Judas Iscariot, for instance. And he's saying the same thing of the, the sons and daughters of God. Satan may be all about me, but he cannot come within me. Because I'm begotten of God. God's nature is now prevalent within me, not the satanic nature anymore. I have been freed from that. Amen! Amen! So I keep myself and the evil one does not touch me. But look at verse 19. We know that we are of God. And the whole world lies within the grip, within the sway, some Bibles might even say, of the evil one. Some Bibles would even say it more graphically. It says the entire world has been usurped by Satan. It's been made hostage to Satan. So however it came about, I'm not entirely sure. But of this we are sure is that we live in a realm where Satan in a way is... is, is Lord, is governing, is manipulating and twisting and perverting. And I want to say to you, what He's trying to do is cause chaos and waste and empty and purposelessness. That's why so many people can testify, before I came to to know Christ, my life was wasted. It was empty. It was chaos and it was purposelessness. And then God comes into my life and I can see... So Satan steals and he kills and destroys, but here's God. He's not upset with all of that, so to speak, because he knows he can have his man. And here's the question to you and I. Will you and I be people that bear the image of God and the testimony of God in this satanically infiltrated, usurped world? I have often heard many of God's people ask, why doesn't God just do something about the evil in this world? Why doesn't God snap his finger and obliterate the usurper of this world? Why doesn't God, since he's king of kings, and he's the Lord of all lords, and he's all-powerful, why doesn't he just do something? And that question... Is a great question, but I believe it is answered from the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus is mentioned over and over again as the one that has come to be seated in the heavenlies, to be enthroned, and he is making his enemy his footstool. In Hebrews chapter 1, there is the first reference where to none of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I set your enemies as your footstool. In Hebrews chapter 2, that reference is made again to the enemies being made Jesus' footstool. It says that, You have subjected all things under his feet. That is, you've subjected all things under the feet of Jesus. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing unsubjected to him. Hebrews 2, verse 8, very plain. All things are under the lordship of Christ. He is really the King of kings. He is the Lord of Lords, and He is fully powerful, fully capable. But listen to this phrase again, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. And in this verse then, there is the tension between the reality and what is manifested. That is, there's the heavenly reality. He is the king. He is seated in the heavenly places. He is glorified and enthroned by God his Father. He is all-powerful, risen and exalted Jesus the Christ. That is a fact. That is true. But in our manifestation in time and space, that has not yet been manifested. So we see here that even though things are true in the spirit, in the heavenlies, it is God's desire that it also be manifested in the here and now. Again, later on in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, this phrase, being seated and the enemies made a footstool, is repeated again. It says here, in verse 12 but this one that is Jesus having offered one sacrifice for sins he sat down forever on the right hand of God henceforth he is waiting until his enemies are made the footstool of his feet here is the burden of God. When Christ came, yes, he fully manifested the authority of God. He fully manifested God's power over Satan and even over the grave, he was resurrected from the dead. But now, as Jesus is seated in the heavenlies, he is doing that work of showing off God Now, through the body of Christ, as the head of the body of Christ, he already showed the pattern, the way, and the potential of the overcoming uh, of Satan. But now he will be using the body to manifest that victory. So Jesus already did it. It is a fact. It is secured, and it's established. But the fact that Satan is still in a way seeking whom he may devour and is running rampant to cause chaos, God has got his body, he's got his men and his women at the ready to show forth the mercy of God, to show forth the grace of God, the overcoming nature of God. And through the body of Christ manifesting the work of Jesus Christ Satan is being made the footstool of Jesus. How is Satan being made Jesus' footstool? Through the manifestation of God's accomplishments through the body of Christ. The world is being made the footstool of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. He is the the, the King over all of this. In all the kingdoms of this world, it's it's His. And He paid for it. But it is being made subject to Him. It's, It's subject to Him by way of the authority of God the Father. God has given this world as an inheritance to Christ. But it's not yet fully manifested. Even though Christ is king in reality, Christ is not king in manifestation. And therefore we live in this interesting tension. Jesus is the Lord of my person, but I am still being made subject to His Lordship. And it's not quite yet manifested. I I still make mistakes. So I am progressively growing under the headship of Christ. And I am being subjugated to Him. And just give it time, His Lordship is being manifested through us. And it's the same in this world. It's a process for that Lordship to manifest. And how will God's Lordship manifest? It manifests through His sons and His daughters. So when we say God is sanctifying you, we might even back up and say, why is God cleansing you? Why is God sanctifying you? Why is God dealing with you? So that He can manifest His kingdom through you. He can manifest His image through you. He can manifest His reign and His rule and His work through you. Because currently you do belong to God. But is His Lordship manifested? Uh Aha, that's the trick question. So when God is dealing with you in the Christian life and He is sanctifying you, Why, why, why? It's so that you can become an expression of His glory. And His Lordship can be manifested. So He uses man to manifest the invisible. Christ was used of His Father to manifest the invisible. He was the express image of the invisible God. The book of Colossians teaches. And you and I are made in that image. So we have a similar mandate. We are here to put God on display. We are here to declare God, to express God. And that is your ultimate, ultimate calling. Everything else is penultimate, as we would say. It's secondary. The book of 2 Corinthians can also be called the book of manifestation. If you carefully read through 2 Corinthians, you will see how many times Paul explain how his life and what has happened to him is a manifestation of something of God. In other words, Paul's life put God on display. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests the savor of the knowledge of him through us in every place. The knowledge of God became known and it was sweet and pleasant through the life of the Apostle Paul. He put God on Display, You might say in chapter three and verse three, Paul would say, since you are being manifested that you are a letter of Christ ministered by us inscribed, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tablets of stone, but in tablets of the hearts of flesh. Inasmuch as Paul was a manifestation of the fragrant aroma of God, the Corinthian body of Christ, that ecclesia, that local community, like a letter, display the heart of somebody. A letter speaks of the intention of somebody. That community display and speak for Christ. Again, through us as individuals, but also through us as a body of Christ, We put God on display. That same principle is in the Gospel of Matthew 5, where Jesus says that you are the light of the world and you are the salt of the earth. When Christ speaks that word, it is to a plural community that he speaks, not to us just as an individual, that you individually are the light of the world, but that you all, plural, are the light of the world. It's a corporate calling to put God on display. Again, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul says, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor are we adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every conscience of men before God. What Paul is basically saying is that I spoke truthfully for God. I manifested the true gospel. Paul's life was an expression of the mysterious unknown truths of God. It became known through his living and it became known through his speaking. In chapter 4, verse 10, Paul goes on to say that we're always bearing about in our body the putting to death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Through the apostle and through us as the body of Christ, the life of God is being manifested. For we who are alive are always being delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So with all the persecution, all the suffering, God was displaying his resurrection power. Again, something of the hidden, the unknown, Something of the supernatural became very visible, very plain, very discernible through the life of the apostles. In chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, again, I uh, tongue-in-cheek would say it's the book of manifestation. Paul would say, "...for we must all be manifested before the judgment seat of Christ." that each one of us may receive the things done through the body according to what he has practiced, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. Yet I hope that we are also made manifest in your conscience. What Paul is contending for is that I hope my life rattles your conscience. You're running from God. You being a rebel towards God. You rejecting and just being a prodigal towards God. May my life and the way that I live, may it provoke you. May my lifestyle with the power of the Holy Spirit Shake your conscience. Can I ask you, is your life exhibiting such a manifestation where the way that you might even speak and conduct yourself, that honor, that integrity, that disposition in which you and I carry ourselves about and in the way that we represent Christ, does it bother people's conscience well when it does then you have glorified God you have put God on display and you have become the man and woman God can use in this earth to push back the darkness In Philippians 2, verse 15, Paul says to the Philippian community that he is praying for them to be blameless and guileless, that they would be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverted generation. Notice that in the midst, right there in Babylon, right there in decadence, of crookedness and perversion, that they would be without blemish. Philippians 2.15 goes on to say, among whom you shine as luminaries in the world, that you are holding forth the word of life. In that decadent, fallen society of that Greco-Roman world, The Christians stood as a luminary, as a, you might say, a a lamp in the darkness, as a a lighthouse, is a luminary that guides the ways of the ships. So the body of Christ, individually and corporately, speak and shine for God. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, as he writes that letter to that community, in verse 8, says a similar thing. He says, for you, the Ephesian community, once you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Your life is the lamp of God. You shine for God. You exude, emanate, and express God. Now, this is God's greatest burden and calling with you and I is that you and I would be changed and transformed and be grown and cultivated to become stewards of the light and the life of God, that we, like Christ and like the Apostle Paul, would manifest God. I want to bring your attention in closing to the book of Romans, chapter 8, where Paul speaks about how God is wanting to recover glory to the sons and daughters of God and how creation is longing for you and I to fully express God. Romans 8 and verse 17. Paul says that if we are children, then we are heirs also. On the one hand, we are the heirs of God, and on the other hand, we are joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Christ, that we may also be glorified with Him. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the coming glory to be revealed upon us. We all fell short of the glory in Adam. Christ has come and He is transforming us through His Spirit to take our place of glory again, to fully shine as luminaries for God. Now, Paul goes on in Romans 8:19, and he says, For the anxious watching of the creation eagerly awaits the revelation of the sons of God. Paul hints that creation is longing that the sons and daughters of God would shine forth their true colors in God that the glory of God would fully come from us and exude from us. And creation is waiting and watching. And he says, eagerly, anxiously watching with expectation and anticipation. He says, for creation was made subject to vanity. So creation is not really shining for God. It's now in a place of vanity because of the fall not because of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be freed from the slavery of corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans together, and travails in pain together until now. And not only so, but we ourselves also, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan eagerly awaiting sonship, the redemption of our body. It is a very complex passage dealing with the glory of God how creation is waiting that we would be fully delivered, body, soul, and spirit, our inner man, our outer man, would be fully delivered into the shining of God, into the glory of God. Adam was meant on this planet to live out the glory of God. We know that he failed, but Christ came and he lived it out. And now by his spirit, he is working that glory into us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says in verse 18 that with an unveiled face, we are beholding Jesus. And as we're beholding His face and His glory, then by the Spirit of the life-giving God, we are being changed and transformed, even morphed into the same glory. This is God's goal. It has always been his goal. It has always been God's heart that the earth and man in the earth together would speak for God and live for God. And what is the Spirit of God doing? He's not just leading you to another job. He's not just leading you to another, let's say, romance or another college or another, let's say, promotion or opportunity. He's doing so much more. He's doing what has been in his heart ever since day one. He is leading us into glory. And so what is salvation? Salvation is to save us from our sins, to to forgive us from our sins, yes. But salvation is the recovery of God's glory upon man. And we know in due time that this earth will be renovated with fire God will do away with the old heavens and the old earth, and he will bring about a new heaven and a new earth, if you will, that will represent God in his glory. Glory is at the front end of the biblical narrative. Glory is at the back end. And in the middle, he is working, he is conforming, he is sanctifying and transforming to bring us from one degree of glory to another degree of glory.